Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Amen. Good morning, friends. How are you doing? If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's really good to have you here today. From now on, we're only doing blues worship music. You guys got into that. I could feel you. You just, you know, you were there. And that's going to be our our regular pattern, I think. To those of you that slept through New Year's Eve, to those of you that were up all night partying, I hope you have a great 2022. We had this weird little break. We did a service on the the 26th, which was wonderful. Peter, one of our elders, came in and gave this wonderful message where he recited the whole of the book of James. It was really profound, really powerful. And someone sweetly came up to me afterwards and said, can you do that? And I said, no. I can do all the other books, but James has always given me problems. Like that's the one that I really struggle with. So uh, it was fun to hear him do that and just, yeah, the, the power of scripture. And we move on to this series now. What to say when you pray? What to say when you pray? Prayer is this controversial, maybe it's a, it's a challenging subject. Uh, because we all instinctively, those of us that would call ourselves Jesus followers, we have this sense of, I should be doing this thing. I should be praying. And it should mean something. I should be able to see results from it. We maybe have stories where we've seen it work in an incredible way. And almost all of us have had stories where we've seen it not work. And we said, why didn't it work? Wasn't there a formula we could follow? Wasn't there a simple sort of plan that we could used to make sure prayer worked when we needed it to? If God is listening, why can't we pray for the car we want? Why can't we pray for the house we want? Why can't we pray for the spouse we want and and get the answer we expect to get or think we should get? Maybe slightly more profoundly, why can't we pray when we have a real need? We've just seen the the really heartbreaking pictures of these fires over in Boulder, nearly a thousand homes destroyed, and not just structures, but memories lost, and the struggle and the trauma that that creates. And why is it that one house stands and lots of others don't? And surely many of those people were down on their knees in that moment saying, God, please spare my house, please spare my memories, please spare my loved one's lives. And did God just not answer? Prayer has this challenge to it, and and we could maybe even think of bigger situations, even more tragic situations that we want to end. For most of us in this room, I would guess we feel like we should pray, and yet there's all these questions that swirl around it. So we want to spend this series sort of digging into that. Maybe this guy's sort of viewpoint, maybe it exemplifies how you may talk about your viewpoint. This man that I'm about to quote you is 64. He would describe himself as an agnostic, but an agnostic that kneels by his bed and prays every single night. And this is what he said in response to a survey. I worry about it quite a lot. Is it some kind of an insurance policy? Is it superstition or is it something more real? I would describe myself at the skeptical end of agnosticism. I certainly wouldn't classify myself as religious. I wonder why I don't stop doing it. Sometimes I feel it's a kind of hypocrisy. This is a man who would not describe himself as religious and yet prays every single night, perhaps more than many of us in this room. As we start this series, we're going to try and clear some groundwork. I've got a few statements that I want to start with. I think most of you in the room will agree with all three of these statements, but some of you may have some questions. Statement one, prayer 
is good for us. Prayer is good for us. On a religious level, on a Jesus-following level, maybe you say, yeah, well, of course it is, but I'm, I'm talking even just scientifically. There's been studies done that say something happens when you take time to pray. My Apple Watch this morning reminded me to take a moment of mindfulness. I'm not entirely sure what mindfulness is, but it reminded me to pause and just reflect for just a second. As people have looked at the what happens in the brain, there is something about taking a big problem taking a struggle and handing it over that does something positive. So even taking aside, is somebody listening? We might say prayer is good for us. But if God is listening, then of course it goes beyond that. There's something incredible that's happening as you offer these things to God and say, God, I would love you to be involved in the situation. We would say statement one, prayer is good for us, whether just scientifically or on that bigger level that we might get those prayers answered. But here's statement two. Prayer is difficult for us. Prayer is difficult for us. I would guess almost 100% of people in this room have tried praying at some point. Sometimes you have tried and just kind of given up. You got distracted by something else. I had a professor at seminary, a person that followed Jesus in a particularly profound way, but once in a moment of honesty said to me, you won't catch me doing a quiet time. My wife, she does the quiet time. I have to be doing things. I have to be active. I have to be busy. He just found his body struggled to sit and contemplate at all. So he just found that he didn't really do it. Maybe you've tried praying and and it just hasn't worked. You didn't get the answer that you wanted. Maybe you found yourself in the midst of praying, suddenly other things come to your mind. Maybe as you're praying, you start to think through the argument that you had with your spouse or with your kids or with your parents. Maybe you start replaying scenarios at work, things that came up that you were kind of mad about. And and rather than actually praying about them, you're now just in this full circle of like, man, I'm just getting madder and madder and madder. And maybe it's just simply that life is busy And tiredness can be the thing that stops us praying. I remember once in a time of trying to engage in a new way of praying, I said, do you know, I think my my body position affects how I pray. So I'm going to pray kneeling down for a while. So I got down on my knees and began to pray. And as I knelt there for a while, my mind began to circle. I thought, you know, I remember reading in the Bible, people praying face down, like lying down on the ground. Maybe I tried that. Maybe that will work. So I lay down on the ground to pray for a while. And and then as I'm lying there, again, the mind spinning, always thinking, I was like, huh, it seems like the bed isn't that much different from the ground. If I can pray lying on the ground, I can probably pray lying on the bed just as well. So I climbed up on my bed and lay down. And then I thought, you know, I could lay on my back. That's, again, not much different than laying on your front. I'm just going to roll over my back and I'll just close my eyes and I'll, I'll just pray like that for a while. And soon I just deeply sleep, slipped into this wonderful, relaxing sleep. Now, maybe that was the thing I needed, but sometimes just general tiredness gets in the way of us praying. There could be multiple different scenarios that you could conjure up in your mind that says prayer is good, but prayer is difficult. And perhaps... If you would call yourselves a follower of Jesus, you might feel pretty guilty about the fact that you don't always feel very good at prayer. Maybe you just gave up on it Uh, a while ago. One lady came up to me after the first service and she said, yeah, I I just kind of gave up on the whole thing. It just doesn't seem to make that sense. Some of the prayers that I've prayed, I just don't believe God will answer those prayers. Why should he? 
Maybe you feel somewhat guilty about that. I think that, yes, we want, prayer is good, prayer is difficult for us. For the most part, I would say statement three is true. We want to be good at prayer. I would say we want to be good at prayer. And I'm not just talking about people in this room, I'm talking about people all over the place. If you look on Google for the subject of prayer, there are over a billion websites on the subject of prayer. If you look for books on Amazon, 40,000 plus books on the subject of prayer. There are people that spend tons of money on resources. How can I be better at this thing? I want to be able to pray. In this room, there are probably three categories of people. There are those fortunate few of you, or maybe those that have worked at it, that are good at praying. Congratulations, I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad that you're here. There's maybe a smaller group that would say, I actually don't think it's important. But I think most of us would say we find ourselves in that middle group. We believe it's important. We believe it's good, but it is difficult and we would long to be good at it. Now, here's the good news. If you find yourselves in that middle group or that larger group, you're in good company. Because about 2,000 years ago, a group of guys came up to Jesus and were told one day while Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. His 12 closest followers picked a, a spokesperson. We would guess probably Peter if we have read the, the gospel narratives. He's usually the spokesperson. And he comes to them and says, Jesus, teach us. Teach us to pray. We want to pray. Now, within this question or this request, there may be a little bit of resentment. There may be a little bit of disappointed expectation. Jesus was very much, in lots of ways, a typical rabbi of his time. Now, that doesn't take away his divine nature. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the way he acted in the world was quite often like many other rabbis would. They would gather followers, and then they would say to them this, I want you to take my yoke upon you. Really weird language for the 21st century, but what it meant was this. Picture two oxen with a yoke on them, they would take a small yox, and a farmer would take a younger yox, oxen and would attach it to a more experienced oxen. And when the younger one would say, I'm going to go off the path, I'm going to go do my own thing, well, the older one was strong enough to keep it in the right place. When it decided to lay down and say, I'm just done for the day, the older one would be able to keep it going. So the rabbis picked out this language and said, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. In practice, how this worked was, a young follower of the way of Judaism would say, right, I'm going to follow this rabbi and I'm going to watch. However many steps he takes on a holy day, I'm going to take the same number of steps. The things he teaches, I'm going to teach those same things. And of course, the way he prays, I'm going to pray in a similar way too. For those of you that are involved in, in coaching people in some kind of business, you may have seen something like this. It's called a coaching circle. When I was working on a golf course, I had a head greenkeeper, a, a superintendent. He came to me, he said, I want you to come out to this green with me. And what we did is he mowed this green first. And then he said, now I want you to do it. And I'm going to watch you. And he watched me for a little while. And then he said, right. I'm going to leave. You got, you got to figure out some of these things for yourself. You've seen me do it. I've watched you do it. You seem to be doing okay. You're no expert, but you're getting there. Now I want to empower you to go and, and do the thing yourself. In practice, this was how following a rabbi worked. He does it and the people would watch. Then they might do it together. And then finally, there'd be this release where these students themselves might become rabbis, take on their own students. 
potentially in this question that Jesus' followers ask, this request they make, there's some resentment of, Jesus, why haven't you taught us to pray yet? Why haven't you done what John did for his disciples? We feel like we're missing something somewhere. As a bit of an aside, when Jesus says this, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That was very good news to a group of people that were used to difficult burdens. That was genuinely good news. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Have they not heard Jesus pray till now? Is that really what we're supposed to understand from this? Are they just missing this altogether? I don't think that's the answer at all. I think they've heard him pray, but to them still, Jesus' way of praying is a mystery. There is something going on here that is not familiar. There's something going on here that they have not experienced in childhood. They have not experienced in growing up. And let's remind ourselves for a second who these men are. Because every rabbi would go and pick students for themselves. In Jewish education, every boy would get an education up till about 11. And then they would say to the worst students, you need to go learn a trade. Go do something else. Go find out what your father does. Go and copy him in doing that. But education is not the pathway for you. And then around 16, they would make a similar cut, a similar decision. And the best students would get to go and learn from a rabbi and maybe become a rabbi themselves. Jesus picks the guys that have already been kicked out, the guys that have already been told, go and learn a trade. He takes the guys, if you put it in sports terms, like baseball or something like that, these guys couldn't hit a barn if they were stood inside it. They are not competent learners. And those are the ones that Jesus picks. Those are the ones that he says, I see value in you. But when they come to him and say, we may have learned to pray as a child, but we never really got it. They're longing to, to, to capture something of Jesus' magic. When I talked about the three groups of people in this room, when I said that some of you may find yourself honestly in a place of saying, I don't think prayer is that important. I don't think it matters. Maybe these guys felt that way, but something they have seen in Jesus' way of praying has awakened them. Something has said, there is something here that is deeply profound. Jesus, we want what you have. We don't want to just parrot prayers like we did as kids anymore. We don't want just what we have. We want the more. We want to pray like you pray. And this is Jesus' response to their request. We'll read the whole passage together. If you have a text, you can open it to Matthew chapter 6. We'll start in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you pray. And now here comes the prayer that we just prayed together. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some versions may continue to say, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You might find in your text it's not there. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. In 57 Greek words, Jesus changes everything about how people have prayed up until this point. But perhaps what's most fascinating is he doesn't get there straight away. They've come and said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus' first response to that is, wait a second. Let me tell you how not to pray first. We'll get to the prayer, we'll get to the 57 words, we'll get to all of these different things that you might say, but first, let me tell you what not to say. And when you pray, do not do these things. Do not be like the hypocrites. Jesus begins his teaching on prayer with how not to pray. And isn't that just like Jesus if you've read these gospel narratives. He quite often says things and does things that are just a little bit surprising. He catches us off guard. A simple request that says, teach us how to pray, begins with how not to pray. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. The the culture of the first century was that those that knew how to pray did it out loud and in public. Religious leaders would have prayer boxes on their arms or on their foreheads and it would let everybody know know that they took prayer very seriously. They would verbalize long prayers for everybody to hear. So if you're someone who says, I'm not sure about prayer and I'm certainly not sure about religious people, again, you're in good company because it seems like Jesus isn't too sure about those people either. Do not be like these people that love to pray standing for public attention. And in another place, to illustrate this even more, he turns this into a whole story. Here we go, Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, if you know something about this culture, who do you think people might expect to be the hero of this particular story? To everyday people, the hero, probably going to be the Pharisee. Bad guy, probably going to be the tax collector. But in this case, the script is flipped. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. In the eyes of the public, is this guy a good guy or a bad guy? Is there anything wrong with what he does? He's doing good things. He's following ethics of the Old Testament. It seems like if God was going to respond, if he was going to listen to a particular prayer, this guy would be a good candidate. If this guy's house was burning down, this guy would be a good candidate. If this guy is in a need of an emergency situation of some kind, again, this guy, in the eyes of the first century, a good candidate for a good hearing from God and maybe some kind of response. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Is this tax collector living what a Jewish person in the first century would consider an exemplary life? Absolutely not. The tax collectors were hated for a reason. They had sided with these Roman invaders. They often took more than they should. They abused their position. They kept people in poverty. There is nothing about how this tax collector is behaving that is defended whatsoever. In the eyes of the first century, the Pharisees should deserve a hearing. And this guy, this guy shouldn't get a hearing. This guy is the bad guy of the story. 
I tell you this, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It seems like in Jesus' mind, there is a group of people that in their prayer, they do something like this. People pray at God for human attention. They pray at God for human attention. And as Jesus clears the ground, as he's preparing these followers of his to learn how to pray, the first thing he says is, don't copy those guys. They don't go away in his language justified by God. They aren't the good guys of the story. However they may appear on the surface, they aren't the ones that God is pleased with. And then he goes on to say this, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Does he say that there's no reward to it? No, there is a reward to it. People will think you're really spiritual. People will think you're great. People may look up to you. If that is what you want, then you should do what they do. If that is your goal, then by all means, stand up and pray loud prayers for everybody to hear. But is that really what you want is his implication. And then he goes on to say this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. And we're going to leave this for next week, but I'll just read through it. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is in scene. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. On to verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So in Jesus' first clearing of the, the road, he says, first, don't copy the people that like to pray out loud for public attention. Now, he says, you may have seen some of these people praying, just reciting the same words over and over again, believing that produces some kind of result. Don't do that either. This word that they use in Greek, batologio, is kind of, it comes from the idea of stuttering. King Batus was a king of Cyrene, and he was known to stutter, so it's this idea of making the same sound over and over again. When you see don't babble, it's don't repeat things. Don't just say the same things, believing that the more times you say it, the more chance there'll be that they're answered. Maybe Jesus has in mind this story from back of the Old Testament. For those of you who know the prophet Elijah, he has this conflict with prophets of another religion, of this god Baal. And we're told that they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response and no one answered. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god, perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awaking. The text has a bit of humorous language in it, right? And it's supposed to be funny. In the original Hebrew, what, what Elijah says is, perhaps he is on the toilet. Perhaps he can't come because he's busy taking care of business. Now, if you've been a parent of young children, you know that the toilet is no escape to privacy. You can be kind of, your attention can be grabbed there just as easily as anywhere else. But this is that language of like, if he's a God, surely he can pay attention even when he's doing those kind of things. You've got to keep going, keep saying the same thing over and over again. Elijah is mocking them. He's laughing at them. And when Elijah prays a couple of verses later, his prayer is just short. It's just, God, you're the God that answers by fire. Answer my prayer. And that's where it ends. Jesus talks about this sort of like repetition as though it's a negative thing. As I was thinking through this in my mind, it reminds me of this story centered around the, the, civil, the um, Cold War. Reportedly, there was a hotline 
from the White House to the Kremlin in Russia during the, the Cold War so that in an emergency, the American president could call the Russian president and supposing someone had fired a warhead or something like that, they could fix the situation before it got really bad. I don't know if they'd thought through the fact that the Russian president doesn't necessarily speak a ton of English and the switchboard operator maybe even less. So what happens when you call someone in a foreign country and you can't get an answer or you can't communicate with them? Well, if you're English or you speak English, I think I know what you do because I've done it for years going to Europe. I just say the same thing over and over again, louder and louder and louder. And I believe that that gets through to people that don't speak English. And you may have done the same thing. I've seen English people in France and Germany all over the place. They just, I'm like, if I say it louder, finally it will get through. Now, justifiably, these people don't speak English because they don't live in an English-speaking country, and yet that can be our approach. It seems like there's some symmetry there with what Jesus is saying. Don't just say the same thing over and over again, believing that has results. As I found this picture of the Kremlin phone, uh, as a beautiful aside, I found that it looked very similar to the Bat phone from the original Batman series, which was just intriguing to me. Maybe that's where the inspiration comes from. We, got to get through to the right people here. It seems that while there's a group of people that pray at God for human attention, in Jesus' mind, there's also a group of people who pray at God for divine intervention. And hold on a second. I understand the criticism of the first one, but that doesn't seem fair. I understand that he might say that babbling is wrong, saying the same thing over and over again is wrong, but, but surely that's why we pray. Surely we want an answer. Surely we want God to act. Surely we want some kind of result. What, why is there a critique of that? That seems like a perfectly fair approach to prayer. I'm praying at God because I want him to act. I want him to do what I need him to do. Why is that? That critiqued in Jesus' clearing of the pathways before he teaches on what to say to God. And maybe here is the distinction. Maybe this is fine, but maybe what Jesus sees happening is, is more like this. Maybe people pray at God to force divine intervention. Maybe you've fallen into that process yourself. If I just say the right things, if I get the right formula, well, then God has to act. If I pray in the right name, if I go through the right steps, then, then surely God will do what I need him to do. And I think the last part of Jesus' teaching here maybe clues us in that that is the problem. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. When Jesus talks about prayer, when he leads his disciples into this prayer that will change everything, he says, come knowing that God knows what you need beforehand. He doesn't need you to come for information. And I, if I'm honest, at times I pray, I'm, an, I'm a passer of information. I was in a band once and one of the guys got sick. And so as we gathered to pray before we practiced that evening, the guy that led the band as he led us all, he said, God, I just want to pray for Simon. He's the bass player, God. And I kind of looked at him and said, you know, I think he might have known. I think he knew that Simon was the bass player before we brought this to his attention. And, and we quite often find that our prayers are, are particularly informative. We pass on a lot of details. And yet Jesus' understanding of prayers, well, God knew before you bought it. That doesn't mean you don't need to say it, but come knowing he's a father that is interested in what is going on in your life. It's not news to him. 
You come bringing him things he is already well familiar with. Perhaps Jesus' prayer life is compelling to his first followers because it doesn't exist on normal terms. Jesus isn't praying for human affirmation or human attention. When Jesus prays, he goes out into the wilderness. He goes out into quiet places. He gets up early in the morning. It seems like he wants to escape human attention. When Jesus prays, he comes with a confidence that God, his Father, already knows what he needs. He doesn't come passing information. He comes in relationship. Eugene Peterson says this about prayer. Praying most often doesn't get us what we want, but what God wants. Something quite at variance with what we conceive to be in our best interests. Something quite at variance with what we conceive to be in our best interest. When I started with, why can't we just pray for lottery wins? Why can't we pray for new cars to arrive on our doorstep? Why can't we pray for new houses? It seems like because those are our things. And part of what Jesus teaches in prayer is prayer is a laying down of our things. It's bringing ourselves into simpatico, into that synergy with who God is and what he wants. And in Jesus' mind, I would suggest this, that prayer with God is greater than prayer at God. And you are invited to pray with him. And I am invited to pray with him. I would say that word with captures what these first followers of Jesus have seen, that there is a withness to it. It is not for God, it is not at God, but it is with him. They are invited in to do that relationship with him. For Jesus, prayer begins not with the right words, but with relationship. You are invited to pray with God. So before he teaches them any of what to say, he teaches them to come to God to be with him, to be present with him. During the series, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you a word each week to take home, a word to bring into your own prayer life, to hopefully stir up some different things. And and the word I would give you this week is this one. It's here. It's the word here. It comes from this story back in the Old Testament, a story about Moses. Now Moses was tending the the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So Moses has grown up as a prince in Egypt. He's now in the wilderness. He's doing this menial job of being a, a shepherd every day. And during this experience, he has this encounter with God. There was a, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Scientists have tried to figure out if this is a natural phenomenon we could understand, and and there really is just no good natural explanation for it. And if there was, well, Moses wouldn't have been quite as surprised, but Moses finds this strange just as we might. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and here I am. At this point, does Moses know anything about who God is? He knows nothing. He was brought up in Egypt. God is a mystery to him, and yet he hears God calling to him, and his simple response is, here I am. 
And I can almost picture the joy of relationship here. It's that moment of meeting, that moment of surprise encounter. A few years ago, I was feeling fairly homesick. I was missing the mothership, and I was in an airport in Detroit, and behind me, I heard this voice in my own accent and turned around and saw a friend that I hadn't seen for years and had no reason to be there. And there was this joy in this experience of, you're here and I'm here as well. And that's almost what I picture in this conversation with God. There is this moment where Moses says, here I am. And it's almost like God says, I'm here too. Isn't that amazing? We're here together. There is this invite into something, into relationship. As God goes on to explain what's happening here, he says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. It's almost like God says to Moses, Moses, there's been a conversation going on for a long time. It's time you got involved in it. You're missing out. And he brings him into this relationship for the first time. This word here perhaps is a great starting point for prayer because it doesn't require anything other than you. It just requires you and I bringing ourselves into this moment of prayer. And I will say that the most profound experiences that I have had of prayer have come out of this. They've come at places not where I was at my best, but at the where I was at my worst. Not places where I felt invulnerable, but in places where I felt vulnerable. They've come in the lowest moments, the moments of greatest uncertainty where I've simply come and said, God, I am here. And it's like in that moment, God says, I'm here too. Isn't that wonderful. Some years ago, just after Laura and I met, we parted ways and we weren't sure we would ever see each other again. And I went surfing with some friends and I took this picture as I sat on a beach in the south of France, feeling very conflicted, very uncertain, feeling unsure what was next, feeling life was a bit more of a mystery that I could handle, feeling, if I was honest, a little bit of a failure, a little bit like I wasn't what God wanted. And I remember in this moment, in my vulnerability, sitting there saying, God, feel like you must be disappointed in who I am. And in that moment, in this sweet sense of presence, it was like God audibly spoke to me and said, how can you believe I'm disappointed? You are loved, you are desired, you are wanted. In Moses' language, it was, I said, here I am. And God said, I am here too. That is good news. It seems like that's where the magic, the beauty of prayer starts. Not with the right words, Not with good formulas, but simply the bringing of yourself with all that you are to God and saying, here I am. Maybe in that moment, you'll hear your name whispered twice as well, Moses, Moses. Obviously, God wouldn't say Moses to you because you're not Moses, just to clarify. We're going to come to this table. We're going to come to this experience, which is really centered around God's presence. And what a great way to start the new year, this idea that you come with whatever you have to bring, good and bad, and say, God, I long to be present with you. Here I am. The communion, the Eucharist, the mass is this response where God says, I'm here too. Isn't that wonderful? It's a subversive activity, a more or less open act of defiance against any claim by the current regime. Anything that you believe about yourself, any lie that you've come to believe, any guilt that you hold on to gets to be laid aside as you simply bring who you are to this table. And God says, I am here with that person. I'm going to invite Aaron and the team to come back on stage and we're going to step towards 
this subversive event that says there is a different reality at play in the world. The things that you might believe about death, the things that you might believe about sin, all of those different things, they are challenged by this table that says God is forgiving and gracious and longs to be in relationship with you. At the start of the new year, you are invited to bring yourself with all that you are to this table and know that prayer starts with God, not at God or for God. Prayer starts with your own brokenness, but your presence in spite of that. And it begins with God's response. I am here too. Let's pray. God, as we celebrate a new year, we do it with the beauty of this table. We bring who we are. Whatever 2021 meant, however mad we are at that year, however frustrated, we bring that. Whatever joys there have been, we bring them. We bring all of ourselves. And like Moses thousands of years ago, we say, here I am. Thank you, Jesus, for modeling relationship with your Father. Thank you that we don't need all the right words. We don't need to be the smartest people in the room. We simply get to come. I am here. You are here as well. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his earliest followers. Taking the bread, he handed it to each of them and said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup and handed it to each of them and said, this is my blood shed for the sins of the world. As long as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. In this moment, we remember Jesus and know that he is present. As Aaron leads us, I'm going to invite you to come and take the elements, take them back to your seat. Perhaps as you come, you'd like to simply whisper those words to God, I am here. Perhaps that's all you can bring right now. And the good news is that's all that you need. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.